0: You're listening to CMPA, Practically Speaking.
1: Hi, Stephen. Hi, Yolanda. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, I wonder sometimes it doesn't hurt to restate the obvious.
0: Well, I, I agree. Um, you know, and th- actually, it would lend itself very well for this particular podcast.
1: Yeah. So we know that communication with patients can be challenging.
0: Uh, yeah obvious, right? Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. Probably the hardest thing we'll ever do. Even the best of us can actually find it difficult to build a strong relationship in a very short period of time.
1: Yeah, especially in the setting of uh, where we have changing patient demographics, physician demographics, uh, a mix of diverse cultures, language barriers.
0: More engaged and more informed patients, or maybe even misinformed. Absolutely. Um, and, And scarcity of physician time.
1: Yeah, so this uh, I think this helps explain why communication-related issues are a number one factor that we see in many of our medical legal files.
0: And in fact, Yelena, if you read the literature, it's all over the place. Yeah, patient-physician communication issues are a big problem. Mm-hmm. Some of the challenges that you know that we note in our files have to do with uh, establishing rapport with patients, uh, communicating clearly, honestly, and directly. Mm-hmm and checking for patient understanding of their diagnosis and their treatment options, for instance.
1: Yeah, but let's not despair because there really are ways that we can improve on our our personal communication skills and our communication styles oh, sure. and techniques and tools. And coming to today's topic is the use of decision aids. So deliberately approaching uh, communication with our patients with a shared decision-making approach that might include the use of a decision support tool is one concrete way that we can address these important problems.
0: And this is exactly what we're trying to do with these podcasts, right, is provide some concrete examples of some little changes we could try Mm -hmm. in our practice to try to make it overall better. So by decision support tool, we're actually talking about patient decision aids, and you've used the term before. Something that you use with patients to help move the discussion forward, to promote patient understanding. And that's not to be confused with clinical decision support tools that may be part of an electronic medical Mm record system, and that are designed to actually help with uh, identifying relevant differential diagnoses.
1: So these patient decision aids are used for the more complex decisions that we sometimes have to face uh, with our patients, where we need more detailed information and more careful consideration of a variety of complex uh, options.
0: Yeah, complex decisions often involve multiple options that people value differently. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the scientific evidence about options is limited, and how we value each one can play a major role in how we decide to
1: proceed. Absolutely. So, you know, the best choice depends on the importance a patient places on the benefits, the harms, the scientific uncertainty. So the goal of using a patient decision aid is to improve the quality of that decision making process and ultimately the quality of the decisions. And you know, Yolanda, the quality of the decision hinges
0: on the extent to which the patient feels they chose care that's congruent with their values.
1: And those values will help our patients better understand and better be able to make trade-offs between benefits and risks of one option, one treatment, one test over another.
0: And, and that's entirely their choice, isn't it? Absolutely. So using patient decision aids can be helpful for the physician too, right? Uh, It can help structure discussions and make them fulsome, allowing for the patient uh, inputs to
1: be provided uh, and and as such to create some dialogue. Absolutely. So, with regards to the the decision aid concept and tools, we want to offer three take-home messages today.
0: As we normally do, right? Uh, The first one would be shared decision-making approaches to treatment and screening discussions, increase patient engagement and satisfaction.
1: And I wonder, by extension, could it possibly decrease medical legal risk?
0: Well, maybe, right? Improving communication between a patient and their physician certainly couldn't hurt, but using them will require some
1: investment of time on your part. Right. And bear in mind as well that the use of these tools may not necessarily lead to an instant decision. We need to manage our expectations of such a tool and our patient's expectations as well. So take home point number two would be using decision aids is one technique we can use to facilitate shared decision making.
0: Right. And take home number three would be that shared decision making is the link between person-centered care and informed consent. Isn't that profound?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes the simplest is the most challenging to accomplish. Yeah. So let's take a case, an example, say a 55-year-old male, we'll call him Joe, who comes to see you and says, I heard about this blood test for prostate cancer, this PSA, and uh, he wants it done because he's afraid of prostate cancer. Uh, Joe is asymptomatic and he has no family history. So what would you tell him? Well, I guess
0: we could just say, sure, let's do it and, and leave it at that. That would be an option.
1: Well, doing what a patient wants as the path of least resistance might not exactly be the best way to get about reaching sound decisions. And it could even be viewed as a somewhat paternalistic approach to medicine. And the whole point of this podcast is to talk about how you could engage patients in a shared decision-making process using a decision aid.
0: And you know, if you were younger and you responded, no, that's not necessary, well, that would be no better
1: just as paternalistic. In both cases, it's the lack of dialogue about the why of the medicine, be it a PSA, a mammogram, an MRI, a surgery, a vitamin WXYZ assay. That makes the care not person-centered.
0: Right. You know, Yolanda, there was a study back in 2019 in the CMAJ and it showed that uh, older patients in rural settings that lived in the province of Quebec specifically and are part of a visible minority group actually perceived significantly decreased levels of shared decision-making.
1: Well, that's interesting. I wonder what reasons uh, would explain that. I, I suspect
0: it's either not being done or it's being poorly done. Mm -hmm. What we do know from the literature is that it seems the barriers include gaps in physician knowledge, uh, either about what clinical situations or patients are appropriate for this approach or thinking that it'll take too much time.
1: So our take-home point, uh, one of our take-home points today was the shared decision-making approaches increase patient engagement and patient satisfaction right however it doesn't quite seem to be the norm yet in many areas of clinical practice like in some worlds like my own oncology for example such tools and decision aids are used quite extensively but it's not necessarily the case across all domains of medicine
0: and some might actually think they are engaging in shared decision making but you know we all have blind spots and sometimes taking the opportunity to receive feedback from a colleague or actually from our patients Mm -hmm. about how well we engage in shared decision making it can actually be a good starting point to improve our care
1: well that would really make a fantastic topic for um, those self-assessment high value credits right
0: oh right for cpd Mm -hmm. everyone's always looking for ways of getting feedback about Mm -hmm. their practice so this would be a great topic for sure You know, working towards being a better communicator can be worth its weight in gold in terms of job satisfaction too, right? Shared decision making is just such a way to be a better communicator. Um, it's It's a conversation between a physician and a patient where the physician shares medical information that's relevant to a health decision, and the patient shares information regarding their values and preferences, and together they arrive at a collaborative decision.
1: So let's come back to Joe's case. If I ask Joe about his values, he might not really know what I mean, but so it's how I say it. So it might be better to say, I'm curious to understand why you're asking about this test now, Joe.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think you're right. If you, if you said to people, what are your values? They'd look at you like yeah. you're in the headlights, probably. Mm-hmm. So, so the phrasing mm-hmm. and the tone are very important here, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to come across as critical either. And you know, there's some scripts available as well, when you don't quite know what to say, and it doesn't come naturally. Um, I'm thinking specifically uh, for discussions around opioids, for instance, uh, there's some very nice scripted conversations that you could that you could rehearse or, or follow that can be of help.
1: So really, it's about finding out what our patients want, what they think what's going on in their lives right now, what concerns they have so that we're better equipped to help them.
0: Now, Yolanda, shared decision-making takes time, as I said before, and that can be a concern for some.
1: It can, absolutely. But... We can't stress enough that investing that time is absolutely worth it in the long term. The dividends and the return on that investment are huge in terms of general satisfaction with care on the part of patients and families and the relationship where it is strengthened. And our article and perspective speaks to some of the literature on this topic.
0: Right. And I think we've mentioned it in another podcast, too, where we have to think about how much time we want to invest now with the clinical interaction versus how much time do we want to invest in responding to a college complaint because the patient wasn't satisfied with the the interaction. Absolutely. You know, some patients, though, may not be used to sharing decision-making. And and we may actually have to socialize them to that concept, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, yeah. Their previous or their other doctors may in fact not have engaged in shared decision making. And so they can be very confused.
1: Yeah. So Joe would say, well, you're the doctor, you tell me.
0: And actually, Yolanda, that's exactly the kind of situation where using a decision tools might be helpful to a patient like Joe.
1: to help us elicit their values and foster a better understanding both on our part and theirs of what the needs are in this situation right and if patients push
0: back a bit that's actually okay in a clinical conversation it's an opportunity to learn
1: absolutely so there are various models in the literature that promote the shared decision making concept but fundamentally it's about two things communicating risk and clarifying patient values
0: essentially Shared decision-making can be framed as being based on choice, options, and decisions.
1: Yes. We first introduce a choice, and then we describe a series of options.
0: And that's where integrating the use of a patient decision support tool can actually be very helpful.
1: So that you can finally help your patients explore their preferences and approach to making decisions.
0: So with Joe, in step one, you would introduce the choices of PSA screening or not screening or other options if they're relevant.
1: And then in step two, you could describe the options and the data around each option. So for example, what proportion of men uh, in his age group have a negative test or what proportion of men in his age group have a cancer detected earlier than had they not had the screening test done.
0: And that type of data is exactly what's in the Patient decision aid right Mm -hmm. and then having reviewed that that makes plain the fact that the test may not be the panacea that Joe was expecting it to be Mm -hmm. so then in step three you would discuss Joe's preferences and values as they relate to his informed decision for example which risk would matter most to him does he prefer to test and risk a false positive and all the potential treatments and investigations that would ensue or does he prefer to do nothing, with the understanding that
1: most likely the test would not change anything anyway for him. And that is uncertainty. There's benefits and risks on both sides of of that process. But instead of me telling Joe, nah, you don't need the test, or sure, let's do it, and leave it at that, you've given Joe the opportunity to understand and to decide for himself what fits his needs best.
0: So before we go, though, it's important to say that not all decision aids are created equal.
1: That's true. So there are standards used to evaluate decision aids. And there's an entity called the International Patient Decision Aids Standards Collaboration, quite the mouthful. Uh, and in general, uh, there are a number of things to look at to determine if we have a good decision aid. Uh, they include, in a, in a first instance, we like to see that the decision aid has included both positive and negative consequences of a clinical decision with the outcome probabilities, as you described. Right. Secondly, the decision aid describes options so that patients can imagine the outcomes in each of those settings using their personal values when approaching the decision. Mm-hmm. And finally, the decision aid links to the evidence that was used to create them and describes the synthetic process or the process that was used to come up with this tool.
0: And that's actually critically important because Absolutely. that's that's important for you, right, to critically assess the quality of the of the patient decision aid and the literature upon which it's based. Um, just like we learned to do with medical literature. Correct, reviews. we
1: don't want to propose something that was fished out of a hat in a, you know, fly-by-night uh, operation. We want something that's founded on evidence.
0: Right. And so often the professional societies might be the ones who actually are putting out these decision aids, which actually is probably also a good hint about their quality. Absolutely,
1: and it's important to remember not only you know, certain specialty societies or entities like the one I referred to, at times our own institutions or facilities might have their own decision aids in certain settings. So if relevant, it might be important to be aware of what's being used in your community or in your practice setting.
0: Right. And again, that goes back to being aware of the standard of care mm-hmm. and applying it to your practice. One of the concepts that we bring up frequently in our podcast.
1: You're right. And we interweave this all the time into our discussions.
0: Yeah. You, you, you can't talk to a reasonably respectable CMPA physician without talking about standard of care or documentation, right?
1: So hopefully it's not too uh, confusing for you. But Stephen, I'm still curious. Um, do you think decision aids might actually help decrease our medical legal risk as physicians?
0: Well, it's not the use of the aid per se. It's, it's the benefit that it brings in terms of your relationship with the patient, I think. The concept of readiness to make a decision, I think is the key to a strong doctor-patient relationship and embarking on a treatment endeavor.
1: And coming back to the point you mentioned of consent, We very frequently see in our medical legal files that there are problems with consent and that hinge on either poor patient selection, that our experts identify as a problem with the consent process, where the patient wasn't ready to accept the risks or didn't understand them well. This is a setup for dissatisfaction with the care and very often for medical legal risk. But
0: you know, it may be a fallacy to believe that at the end of one discussion, our patients will be able to choose. Uh, the patients may very well need to take this home with them, mull it over, and think about it more before they can actually decide.
1: Yeah, it's it's a process. It's not plug in the data, poof, spits out an answer. It is, it is a process that requires time. And our acknowledgement of that process, in fact, epitomizes patient-centered care and moves away from paternalism and bases itself on dialogue. And in fact, I'll take that one step further where consent and person-centered care intersect is where shared decision-making lives.
0: Well, that's profound, Yolanda. I like it. It's about promoting the patient participating in informed consent, having a say in what happens to them.
1: And it's important to remember that we interpret these tools through the lens of our own medical knowledge, balanced with our understanding of our patient's values and expectations. And above all, that no tool is perfect. And as with most things in medicine, It's important that we not be too rigid as well. Right. So, Stephen, I think it's time for a communication tip. Well,
0: Yolanda, I would suggest that my tip would be leverage patient teachbacks or use patient teachbacks in in your interaction. So first, teach or discuss the decision or the concept, then ask the patient to repeat that information in their own words. So patient teachback essentially does two things. It promotes information retention because the, inf- the patient actually has to synthesize mm-hmm. that information to be able to reward it. And it also allows you to assess whether or not there are gaps in the patient's understanding. If the patient misunderstood or misses a key part of the information, you know about it and you can explain it again. So
1: how about you, Yolanda? Do you have a documentation tip for our listeners? At the risk of repeating ourselves, document. We cannot stress enough the importance of good documentation and that's not a message we haven't said before at the CMPA, but really, seriously, if you used a decision aid to help your patient's discussions, document it. And don't just document that you used it, but keep a copy of the tool on the patient's file send the patient home with a copy of the decision aid so they can process and digest it and share it with their family because sometimes the family's values are important in their decision-making process. So documentation is more than just writing it in the in the record that you used it, but keep a copy, send it home with them, let them process it.
0: And that's really important because keeping a copy uh, of the version of the tool can actually uh, help you later on to understand why you may have suggested to go one way or another you remember these tools change over time as the data improves as the science uh, uh, evolves the, the 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 stats that those decision
1: aids uh, and them quoted are 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 framed in that time set it's also helpful not wanting to, to to tempt fate, but in the event we had to defend. Well, we set the standard of care based on that. We're not going to compare care delivered in 2001 to care delivered in 2021. And if you use the decision aid that quoted data from X year, that will frame what the standard of care was at that time.
0: Well said, and thank you for coming to my rescue there <laughs> because I was just at a loss for words. <laughs> Well, Yolanda, I, it really is the, the end of the podcast. I think we've gone over time now. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening to uh, Practically
1: Speaking. Yes, thanks for joining us today. Remember, we welcome your comments, your questions, and any ideas you might have. We do. We do. And you can email us at podcasts
0: at cmpa.org. So that'll be it for today, everyone. Thank you very much. And remember, Yolanda, when we change the way we look at things, the things we
1: look at change. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. These learning
0: materials are for general educational purposes only and are not intended to provide professional medical or legal advice, nor to constitute a standard of care for Canadian healthcare providers.